welcome to episode 79 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I am James Cohn. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp, Swamp Flicks. <laughs> we are recording in James's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans. And we have not talked on the microphone since before Mardi Gras. And I've only seen you once since then. We went on that heavy metal road trip with Brittany down to Araby. To see the new uh, zeitgeist. Yeah. And she and I talked about that a little bit last episode. Oh, about the movie? Yeah, and just the experience. I mean, we, we were both fully positive on it. I think you were too. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Have you been watching movies since then? I actually have. I know the last time we did an episode together, I was like, I'm not really watching movies. I'm, I'm watching a TV, TV guy now. <laughs> I'm totally not a TV guy. Uh, I've been watching a lot of movies lately. Let's see. Well, as far as what I saw in theaters, I did go see Us. I haven't seen it yet. Is that yeah. crazy? It's been weeks. Yeah, but see... You saw um, Climax, yeah. which I really wanted to see, but I couldn't drag my parents to go see it. They wanted to go see Us instead, so I missed out on Climax. I'm so stoked about Us, and I don't want to sound like I'm not stoked to see it. It's like stuff when stuff like Climax shows up or like a film festival shows up, and it's like, okay, I have one week to knock that out before it disappears. Us is going to be Us around, is gonna be for, around a for a minute, so I kind of push it off, and then I have to avoid spoilers like a crazy person. Well, not, and honestly, I don't even really want to get into it because I have some thoughts on it, but I'd rather... Oh, super positive thoughts or... Ne- negative. Damn. I know, I'm uh. a hater. Ugh. But I, I'd rather like not try to influence your viewing experience and just like... I would rather just hear what you think okay. about it. I was not super high on it. Would you call it a good movie? Like a three-star film at least? The rating I gave it walking out of the theater was a B. Damn. Yeah. B, B plus, maybe. Which is still good. I mean, come on. It's Boomer not... just posted like a five-star review of it on the site today as we're recording this. So <laughs> this is like really well, mixed messaging. Just, talk, <laughs> just talking to my girlfriend and all the, everyone else had seen it, I feel like so in the minority. Yeah. I'm starting to question my own just... Do I know what I'm talking about? Like, it, yeah, but I don't know. I'm pretty, pretty firm. Oh, we're gonna have to come back to this. Yeah, so I, I won't go into into us, but um, two movies that really kind of took me by surprise that I saw recently was one was Velvet Buzzsaw, and Brittany really liked that one as well. Did she? Yeah. Did she bring that up on a what she's been uh, watching? She did, she? and I'm about to post her five-star review of oh, that, really? she gave which is insanely star. high, like considering the, the temperature of other critics. But I don't know. I really found her affection for it. I was invigorating. really high on it. It's not, you know, it's got its faults, but man, it's a really fun picture. I, I definitely want to read her review because it's like this art critique, but it's also like a horror flick, but it's also got a lot of witty dialogue and it's, it's, it's a riot, dude. It's a fun movie. I really like how campy it is. And like Jake Gyllenhaal's been putting in these really over oh, the top sh- performances lately. He chews the scenery, yeah. and this one especially, like he's by far my favorite character. And I like that, even though there's not a central protagonist, it's kind of spread amongst multiple characters. Yeah, he uh, he was definitely the one that I kept going back to, and I enjoyed every second he was on the screen. And it does have something kind of interesting to say about art, in the same way that the director's other movie um nightcrawler nightcrawler you know what to say about the media and exploitation whatever and they're both like attacking the commercial side of that right like they're both about the money that's behind 
Yeah. You know, art being these like tax shelters for the ultra rich and like. And Velvet Buzzsaw kind of goes into the collectors, the agents, the reviewers, the artists themselves, and how everyone is kind of complicit in commercializing art. But it's really just like a super fun movie. And, you know, it's on Netflix. So you can watch it whenever. It's great. So I liked it as well. Oh, you, okay. I have seen, seen it. it. Okay, okay. I'm just not as enthusiastic as Britney. Like, I feel like that's a Britney movie. You know, it's got Tony Collette in it. It's really over the top. That's no, like I, her, it wouldn't be a five star for me. It's it's like a four. I love her enthusiasm for it. Um, I really like the atmosphere of it as far as like where it's set. And I really like the performances and the core concept of like killer paintings. Like, right. I love that kind of bullshit. It's so cheesy. Yeah. I have a little caveat, though. I just wish the violence was a little more harsh, and I wish the sex was weirder. Like, you have these, like, mm-hmm. avant-garde, artsy-fartsy types who live in these, like, sterilized environments with this, like, out-there art that they're selling. And right. then they have the most vanilla, like, heterosex, and the kills from the paintings aren't brutal enough for me. See, Especially the considering where Nightcrawler went, you know? Right. The kills, I agree. Like, I wanted it to be more gory. But I thought the sex was kind of the point that you would think that these artists and art critics are having the most passionate, great sex. And they're really just, or just like, weird shit. I don't know. Or weird or whatever. Yeah. But it's like just <laughs> as lame and boring as anybody else. Like that kind of got to the point for me a little yeah. bit. But um, I see that. But as far, as far as the like gore, I think it could have doubled up on on that aspect of it. But no, I agree. I'm not. I wouldn't give it five stars, but. <laughs> I, I'm pretty high on the movie. I like, yeah, I liked it too. We enjoyed it. We had a good time. And uh, the other movie I wanted to mention, which totally, I almost feel ashamed to even say that I enjoyed it. <laughs> Embracing like, myself. <laughs> right. Because it's so, it's something I should hate. But so I watched Crash recently. You know, the. The Cronenberg uh, one or the racism is bad one? The racism is bad. <laughs> And it the was gr- the green book of its time. Right. And that's kind of why we watched it. Cause it is so cookie cutter. Like, Oh, everyone, everyone's racist. And we could just all get along and we really have more in common than we have different from each other. We really yeah. just gonna meet in the middle. And you so know. I just saw, so we like revisited that and it was like, whatever. But then when I was at the library, I saw the shack and I was like, you know, this would be a good follow up to crash. Like I feel like this is probably some very simple, message about like just love your neighbor or whatever and we watched it and it just like was so much fun it's um the basic premise is like this guy he's like a good christian man but he was raised by an alcoholic father who beat him and he ultimately poisoned him and killed his father is like his dark secret and then he grows up to be a family man and one day when he's out camping with his family, his older son and daughter flip over the canoe and the son is drowning and he dives into the water to save him and he does and he gives him CPR and he comes alive and then everyone realizes like, oh shit, where's the young girl? And she gets abducted by a serial killer and murdered. What? Yeah, murdered and um, they come up to this abandoned shack where he takes his victims and they find a blood trail and her ripped up dress jesus yeah i'm like whoa this is super dark why are all these like christian (laughs) book of the month club stuff like why is it always so fucking morbid i know 
And I, we were talking earlier about like maybe doing an episode about these Christian films. I'm like, damn, that's dark as hell. Like, yeah. so he's struggling with his faith and he gets a note in the mail like, hey, um, come come to the shack. It's been a while. We need to reconnect from Papa, which is his wife's name for God. This is like, who sent me this? Like, all right, I guess I'll go to the shack. Where Not my... that I have any negative association with shacks. Right. <laughs> no, it's literally the shack oh, where his God. daughter was murdered. And he gets there and it's cold, barren, whatever. And he's like, why am I here? And he hates God. And then he walks outside and there's a Middle Eastern man walking through the forest and it just becomes alive. And it's obvious like this is Jesus. And he's like, hey. Why don't you come hang out with us for a weekend? And he gets to like this summer home with Jesus, God, who's played by Olivia Octavia Spencer. Spencer, Sorry. That's the one thing I knew about this movie was that Octavia Spencer plays God, which is pretty good casting. Right. And then the Holy Spirit is played by this like hot Asian woman who's glowing. And the like other two thirds of the movie is just him hanging out with the Holy Trinity, asking questions he goes to Jesus's woodworking shop. They race on water. God cooks delicious Southern cooking. God's a huge fan of Neil Young. There's conversations about faith and it's just really batshit crazy. It's a pretty high premise. Yeah. High concept. It's based on a book that sold like millions and millions of copies. But yeah, about halfway through the movie, I was like, I'm actually enjoying this. And this is like totally out the box weird, like the whole premise for this thing. And uh, I don't know if I would say that I like, it was like an ironic watch. Cause at some point I was just like, this is fun and silly. And I mean, he's a man that's asking the Holy Trinity, like to its face, like these questions about, I can see how the God- ph- philosophy debate would uh, be sort of in your forte, you know? Yeah, but it's so it's really silly. Anyway, like Did it work on you? you are you converted now? No. <laughs> You've been convinced. <laughs> not not I wish it would have gone deeper. Like I wish the movie would have been like 7 hours long. Yeah. And just really delved into every question. But honestly, like I really enjoyed that movie and I don't know what's wrong with me. So <laughs> The Shack. I feel like I'm doomed. You're gonna make me watch this. <laughs> I'm gonna make you watch <laughs> it. But um, the yeah, that was uh the ones that kind of stand out. Yeah. From what I've seen recently. What about what about yourself? Well, here's where I'm gonna break your heart. Like okay. I should be well behaved and be like, oh, I saw the new Gaspar Noe and I saw the new Harmony Corinne. Let's talk about those. And wait, really you saw the about, new Harmony? Corinne? Oh yeah, I saw them both. They're both very good. But that's not what I want to talk about. What? <laughs> I didn't even know the new Harmony Corinne was out. Yeah. The, Matthew McC- the Beach Bomb? Yeah, it's bombing. You should go see it before it goes away. You liked it? Yeah, I liked it. It was basically like his version of a 90s mainstream comedy. Like okay. it was if Harmony Corinne made Billy Madison. So it wasn't like a subversive. Oh, it still feels like gummo. And I was the only person okay. laughing in the theater. But like the structure and the look of it feels like a mainstream comedy. It feels like something normal enough to lure in audiences who are going to fucking hate it. So it's okay, like okay. bombing got bad word of mouth. It's great. I could go on for that, but I'm not going to do that. Okay. I'm going to filibuster and I'm going <laughs> to yeah. do what you hate. And I'm going to go off on a rant for a little while. No, that's fine. I, w- I went on a little rant too. Today is spring cleaning. We did this last year when we talked about French Film Festival. Mm -hmm. I filibustered about Overlook Film Festival. 
because we end up doing these French Film Fest episodes so far out that I end up going to another Film Fest in the meantime, mm-hmm. and I have a lot to talk about. Let it off your chest. Yes. This is the festival roundup. First of all, this weekend is the last New Orleans and Comics and Zines Festival. It's the last NOCAS. Okay. No they are yep. discontinuing it after this weekend. So April 6th and 7th at the main branch of the New Orleans Public Library, I'll be selling zines at NOCAS. Come by and see me. I uh, made new zines about John Waters and some like cult horror movies. And also made a new zine about um, Matt Farley, who I talk about all the time on this show. By the way, if Matt's listening to this, I did send you some of these in the mail. Hopefully you checked your P.O. box before you're hearing this. And did he, he wrote a song for you, didn't he? Oh, yeah. He? And yeah, he surprised me with a song called God. Brandon Day Reviews Movies Excellently. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a fun listen. Okay. And I'm actually going to include that at the top of the next episode because me and Brandon are going to watch a few of his movies. You're welcome to join if you want to come. I would love to. Yeah, that'd be great. So anyway, come buy some Matt Farley zines with me. It's WrestleMania weekend, too. I'm going to be in a good mood. And the whole reason I started making zines five years ago was because we went to the first NOCAS and I was very inspired by like the DIY aesthetic out there. Mm-hmm. And it felt like the blog was already a kind of zine and I didn't really know it until I saw like physical print copies of Xeroxed zines people were making. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I'm already doing that. I just haven't been like printing them. Anyway, that's one festival. I also went to a film festival I've never been to before. It's in its 15th year this year called Patois. Have you ever heard of that? I've heard of it, yeah. It's the New Orleans International Human Rights Film Festival. So they screened dozens of movies at the Broad over two days in this one theater, like one of the smallest theaters at the Broad, actually. And they had these like activists in the lobby distributing pamphlets for like different political causes Mm. before each film. They give this sort of like human rights place setting speech, acknowledging like the indigenous lands that we're occupying, like where the festival is and like the fact that New Orleans is on indigenous land. And, you know, it's very just like politically conscious in that way. Mm -hmm. So they played a bunch of politically conscious movies over a couple days. And I went to a few. What did you see? So at Patois, the first movie I saw, I saw based on your recommendation. And it's called I Am Not a Witch, which was one of your favorite movies from last year. What did you think of it? It was great. Yeah. So this is a a Zambian drama about this girl who is accused of being a witch and instantly sentenced to a life in a government-owned labor camp Mm -hmm. uh, with other witches. And all the other witches are these old unmarried hags, more or less, the way they're treated anyway. Uh, It's a rude way to put it. And, you know, she's like eight years old and was like, oh, well, I'm going to be in this lifelong prison sentence. Her only escapes from the prison camp are this um, government goon sort of parades her around as like this tourist attraction and, you know, makes money off of her being this like novelty as like a young witch. Mm. Doesn't that sound really grim? This movie's so but fucking fu- funny. <laughs> That's what I tried to tell you when we were doing our year in round. Like, this is a funny movie. It sounds oh. like it's going to be a downer. It's a really weird version of satire where like we're so far removed from like Zambian culture. Right. I don't know anything about tell how much of it is real and like definitely like the gendered like oppression and the gendered like subjugation at the center of it is like a real thing well even the the witch colony thing is apparently a real okay so those exist but i'm assuming the spools of ribbon that keep the witches tethered to the ground right that's a metaphorical yeah symbolic thing yeah my metaphor for it was like if someone from Zambia, their first American movie was like, sorry to bother you. And they were like, this is what America's like. 
It's like the overall arcing truth of that movie is very much what America's like right now. But like, if you're trying to decipher what details were the real world and what was like heightened for satirical effect, right? It, you'd have like kind of a skewed version of what life here is like. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what it felt like watching that movie. Like I laughed a lot. I was shocked and horrified. I found other things beautiful. And it's this really weird mix of like tones like that. And for, for a debut filmmaker, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. When she's like on the talk show and those kind of scenes, it's like, Seems kind of based in reality that they would peddle them out to the talk show. But yeah, you don't have like an insight truly into the culture. So you just kind of take it at face value. And I wonder like if there's a tourism aspect to the real life camps, because some of the like harshest satirical scenes are these like British tourists coming down to these like Zambian camps and pictures. Yeah, taking selfies with the prisoners. Really fucked up stuff, but really funny. It's so hard. That's to, hard to sell without you haven't yeah, seen to it. Yeah, straddle that line of fucked up and funny. Yeah. And the lady who made it was born in Zambia and mm-hmm. moved to like Wales when she was a kid. Uh, I think she lives in London now, but that's pretty like amazing perspective. Like she brings a very specific backstory and like you know knowledge of this subject that I don't know who else could have made it in, in this particular tone anyway. Yeah, and like you say, even though I might not be clear on the actual facts and reality on the ground. I feel like the film expressed the emotion and the feeling of what's going on over there. So like it felt real and true, even if you're kind of questioning the like particulars. Yeah. I wouldn't buy any of the details of this at face value, but like, I feel like the topics and the like subject of the movie felt very real. Mm -hmm. It's coming from a real place. And you know, it's really smart to sweeten that, you know, bitter medicine with some comedy, especially the buffoon who works for the government who parades her around. It's like a really funny performance, yeah, even though he's a best. total monster. <laughs> also, that same night, I saw this block of short films called New Queer Stories. I don't, there's so many shorts, I'm not even going to go in all of it, but just basically I saw one where Maya Taylor from Tangerine played Martha P. Washington. That was a few years coming. I've been waiting to see that short for like a long time and it never got distribution. So it was kind of cool to see it in a, uh, you know, theatrical environment with like a rowdy crowd, you know, some local people put in some great stuff. Have you ever seen that band special interest that plays around town? Mm-mm, no, I saw them open for like cakes to Killa and a couple other like queer punk kind of shows. The lead person from that band had a movie there and she was just like a great speaker and stuff. And uh, there's this other guy who his production company is called oppressed juice. And he, uh, <laughs> he had this movie that was basically like a self portrait filmed on just like a camera and you know we always love that stuff when like someone just takes out a camcorder and like makes a movie just by themselves you know yeah and it's basically just him talking about being a sex worker and like how he had to do these really degrading like race-based role-playing things where like he'd let the people call him like racial epithets for like certain amounts of money i think the movie's called like my pretty black ass (laughs) and it wasn't pulling any punches but it was also extremely funny in a way that i can't really convey without you having seen it (laughs) so i don't know if you if you see anything by oppressed juice around the city and he actually works with special interest uh and their studio together is called studio la 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 and they do like new orleans based queer uh micro budget filmmaking but anyway really great stuff really cool crowd i'd like to keep my eye out on them the next day, I saw this movie that you should probably see or you have seen before. It just seems like something that would be on your radar. Hmm. It's called Tuki Buki. Uh, Tuki Buki. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, English translation is The Journey of the Hyena. It's uh, a 1973 Senegalese movie. It kind of reminds me of Black Girl. Have you ever seen that movie from the, se- from the 60s? 
Uh, it's these like Senegal filmmakers sort of using the tools of the French New Wave to like politically subvert like French intellectualism. So both Black Girl and Tukibuki kind of look and feel like French New Wave movies, like very immediate handheld cameras and like these like very drastic angles and these people sort of like playing these like, you know, classic noir archetypes almost, these like uh, reckless heroes. Mm -hmm. But they're sort of like railing politically against the French elite uh, because, you know, Senegal and France have that uh, colonialist relationship. Uh, Tukibuki, I think you would really like though. It's this psychedelic road trip movie where these two characters, one's a college student who's like sort of like a intellectual revolutionary and her boyfriend is this renegade ox herder. He works like herding oxes to make money, but mostly he just drives around this like little dirt bike, uh, around the markets and around his like little village, uh, with a cow skull mounted to the head of it. And it's just like the badass of the village and he's burning fast and bright. Like you can just tell he's like living this like life where his only trajectory is going to be down yeah. because he's got yeah. these really big dreams and his big scheme for this movie is they're going to steal enough money to escape to Paris together and make a new life and come back as big shots once they're like rich in Paris. The movie is really interesting in its structure though, because it feels like he dies like five different times in the film you hear that he jumped off a cliff or he gets dragged away and like beaten to death or there's like a motorcycle crash that wasn't him, but it was someone riding his motorcycle and he like holds the dead body in his hands. Hmm. It, it feels like all these different deaths to where the movie has this sort of like fractured sense of time and this like fractured sense of reality. But it feels like no matter what the arc that you're getting is this guy ha has these big dreams and no matter what, it's going to end badly while he's still young. And it's just really hmm. cool to see this like, I think it was made for like 30 grand, this like scrappy African production from the seventies using these oh, yeah. tools of like the French elite and then completely just distorting them and like subverting them and then turning Sounds them awesome. into this like really cool psychedelic thing. Scorsese, I think within the last five years spearheaded this like restoration of it for criterion. So it looks really nice too. They did warn us before the movie started that there's going to be extreme scenes of animal violence. Uh, so if that's like a no, don't watch it. Because there's scenes of the oxes actually getting to this like abattoir where they're like slaughtered, and you see a lot of them, you know, getting their throats slit and like skinned. It's fucking gruesome, but it's you know cross cut with this guy almost like his fate as he's being led to this like death, no matter what path he takes, trying to steal money on his way to France. You know, hmm. So it's a little gruesome, but it's 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 very well done. But see, that feels different than like cannibal holocaust or something where it's like some outsiders came in and we're doing this stuff and like it, it feels less exploitative i'd say with of. cannibal holocaust yeah like you're saying they're like italians coming in and like basically like look how gruesome this culture is uh, yeah. this is more like the fact of life is this these is animals is. get slaughtered this is like a documentarian look at it yeah see i, I don't think i would have as much of a problem with but that but you, you're still watching this like animal get like slaughtered it's like literally just tons of blood and these like white animal pelts it's uh it's just a little gruesome to watch i can see how that would require a trigger warning for a lot of people i'm kind of glad they'd like let us know before it happened because it happens very early and often I don't, and I'm making it sound like it's this like nasty, like cannibal Holocaust movie. It's really not. It just kind of, it, it's no, jarring. I, I was just trying happen. to make the distinction that it's not. Yeah. Cannibal it's it's Holocaust. not exploitative in that way, but it is still gruesome. The like, world, the world is gruesome. And that sounds awesome though, dude. I think you'd like it. 
And since it's on Criterion, you could probably get it at a library pretty easily, I would think. Tukibuki. Tukibuki. <laughs> it's so easy. I will definitely check that out. <laughs> and the last one was this movie called Betty, They Say I'm Different. It has not officially gotten a distribution deal yet, but it's been on the festival circuit for like two years. So like, really the only way to see this movie right now is if you go to a festival that programs it. And I'm not entirely shocked by that because it feels almost incomplete. It's this documentary about Betty Davis, not mm. the actress. Oh. It's about this woman who married Miles Davis briefly in the 70s. Hmm. So this is why I thought you might be interested in this, because it's somebody who was connected to Miles Davis at some time. And jazz, yeah. Well, she was the one that influenced him to sort of move away from jazz into this, like, you know, funk electric guitar phase that he had in the early 70s. Right. And he, like, changed the way he dressed and everything because of her. Yeah, the fusion thing, Yeah. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, the, the <laughs> yeah. jazz fusion with like fusing rock and yeah, that era of together. his career. Mm-hmm. So her thing is she's usually reduced to like Miles Davis's wife. Like that's how most people think of Betty Davis. It's really fucked up because she is a very like fascinating artist on her own merit. She made these three albums of this like raunchy, sexy, politically like aggressive funk albums. And then she like disappeared. And it's because none of the press was impressed by her when she came out. Like she had like a pretty solid, like dedicated fan base, mm-hmm. but she never sold enough records. The press was like really cruel to her saying she was like taking black representation back and like undoing the like normalization of like the civil rights movement to like make people seem like, Oh, we're all the same, you know, like it's like we're normalizing. Ups, we're upstanding uh, citizens. Yeah. And here she is on stage, like owning her sexuality and like, you know, basically showing passion and like, this, like so she was definitely energy. ahead of her time. Definitely. Uh, the, the Miles Davis quote everyone uses about her is like, she was Madonna before Madonna Prince before Prince. The other fucked up thing about that is that Miles Davis beat her and being associated as his wife, even though they were briefly married and he was like physically abusive, like took a huge toll on her like self-esteem. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Here's the problem with the movie. She is fascinating and the music is great. And I can't believe I've never heard it before. So the movie's doing a great job, like just getting her name out there. Exposing her to people that wouldn't know otherwise. The problem is that she's like very reclusive and she feels like she's been burned by like the world at large. So she has nothing to give us. Like she doesn't owe us anything, you know? And the movie wants to get her out there and wants to, like, reinvigorate her career. Right. She kind of wants to be left alone. So the movie's just kind of, like, stuck. If it was a worse film morally, it might be a better film entertainment-wise. Like, if it sort of disrespected her wishes and how she wanted to be seen on screen, it'd have a lot more to work with. But instead, it's very respectful and careful about how it represents her. You see her, you know, this woman hasn't been seen by the public in, like, 30, almost 40 years now. You see her in her apartment, but only shot from the back and not seen like full on in any way. She's like very obscured. You hear her narrating, except it's a voice actor. She didn't want her own voice in the movie. And the narration's very protective and very loose. Like it doesn't really tell you the story of like why she decided to disappear. It, it deals with everything very indirectly. And that's how she wanted to come across. I think it's very admirable that they like respected her wishes in that way. The problem is that it's like now a 50 minute, 52 minute movie. So it's like almost a full feature. It's not really quite there because it took away a lot of stuff in editing that right. she didn't want out there. And then also it has to fill that time somehow the way it does it is these like almost YouTube level, like lyric videos. There's these like collages of her press clippings 
with lyrics that pop up on screen while you listen to the songs. Mm -hmm. And then also these sort of like cheaply made, like artsy fartsy touches where like flowers wilting and like time elapsed uh, camera work or like, I mean, it's it's hard to do a a documentary on a subject that that doesn't want to be out there. Want to be out there. Yeah. But at the same time, I never really knew who she was and I just went to go see the movie because the description sounded cool. And now I know who this funk artist is and I'm like, really excited to listen to her three albums. Right. So, you know, it's doing its job, but it's also like kind of tying its own arm behind its back to like, you know, out of respect for its subject. And she doesn't owe us any more than she's willing to give. So, right. But it's like self limiting. I think, I think it's worth a watch if you're like really into her or if you've never heard of her. Right. I've never heard of her at all, but it's a good primer for like fandom for mm-hmm. that. I think you you hear a good sampling of songs from her three albums and they do a pretty good job of contextualizing why she's important. Um, it's just, if you want to know more than that, the documentary is not. It doesn't feel complete. It's not going to go yeah. as in-depth as you want it to. I'll check that out still. Great group of like screenings, though. I had a really fun festival. Fun might even, not even be the best word for it because it was like politically minded and like gruesome at Some times. hard-hitting stuff. Yeah. Very, yeah, it seemed very diverse, though. Yeah, and I would say everything I saw wasn't like you know, super morbid. There's probably self-selection. I probably could have gone seen some like really gruesome, like heartbreaking things, but mm-hmm. I'm always going to gravitate towards, you know, something with a little levity. I would totally go to Patois again next year. That's the summation. And all those movies I'd recommend to various degrees. Yeah. And I'll join you. Well, here we go. We're going to talk about another film festival. It's the French <laughs> film festival. And it happened before Mardi Gras. So. It seems so long ago. Oh my god! I I hope I can get through this with some like level of detail and like insight because you know that memory's really faded. They're fading. <laughs> but uh, that's the that's what spring cleaning is all about. We're gonna do some festival spring cleaning and talk about French movies for the rest of the episode. Yeah. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. From pirates to playboys to village people, there are as many types of mustaches as there are types of men. But all of them need a good trim every once in a while. You will need. A pair of grooming scissors, a fine-toothed mustache comb, a mirror, a sink or a basin, some water, optional, an electric mustache trimmer. And now for our movie of the minute. Uh, this is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And it was James's turn to pick this time. What did you make me watch? Well, keeping with the French film festival kind of theme, this movie, La Moustache... It was just a random, I found in the public library, I just saw the title, oh, The Mustache. Like, this is going to be a very silly, I, I thought it was going to be like a farce. Charlie Chaplin has one of those. He's delightful. Yeah. <laughs> but watching it for the first time, because like watching it with you for the podcast is like the third time I've seen it. But that very first time, like my expectations were just thrown out the window and I was like, oh my God, like this is much deeper and darker than anything I could have imagined. And so it's a movie that's always sort of stuck with me for the past like couple of years. And I always like kind of go back to it. I don't know why it has had this sort of profound effect on me, but anyway, it came out 2005 and it's a pretty simple premise on the surface. It's just a man who decides one day he's had this mustache his whole life and he's going to shave it off and he kind of presents himself to his wife like, Hey, like you notice anything different. And she just 
disregards him. She's like, yeah, you're acting odd. Yeah, you're acting weird. Like, what's up? And he's like, wait, you don't you don't notice? I I shaved the thing off. And he, it kind of spurs this existential, maybe midlife crisis, him questioning his own identity. And it all is based around the fact that no one notices that he has shaved off his mustache. And it sounds kind of flippant when you describe it that way and silly, but it's actually not. This film really gets into some subterranean ideas of what personality means and what your ideas of the self and these, these kind of like really deep, like almost philosophical issues on something that seems so like silly. This is like a important movie to me. And with the French film fest, I felt like it was the perfect time to make you watch it. And I've been very curious as to what your thoughts on the movie, because I, I don't feel like it's necessarily your favorite kind of, of movie per se, but, um, well, it has something I'm always on the hook for, which is that like classic stage play kind of menace. I know you and I really like that movie, the birthday party. Yeah. From Friedkin. Oh yeah. Or the exterminating angels. Another one where there's just something wrong. And it's just like fundamentally wrong with the universe, but it's all sort of played out through dialogue. Mm-hmm. And that way the menace becomes like, you know, subliminal and it's like absurd and existential and like the classic, like dictionary senses of the words, which are, are both very French. This is a very French movie. And in that, like I've read all these analysis of the movie and they go into Lacan and his philosophy and the mirror self. And then you go into like Freud and psychoanalytics and, I've read some essays about this that go super deep. And honestly, like that's the least interesting part to me. Like I'm sure there's something there because it is this like French, almost philosophical movie, but I I feel you can get a lot out of it just on a purely uh, entertainment level. Also, there's like a whole novel it's based off of, but Mm -hmm. the director wrote the novel first, I think. Yeah. From what I understand, the novel has even darker places it goes apparently there's some like body horror elements in the book that never made it to the screen so yeah i'm sure there's this whole philosophical like backdrop to it that goes even deeper than what you get on the screen but i really respect movies that can make you feel like the rug's been pulled on from you that's all just words like yeah you get this like physical change the guy starts the movie with this big bushy mustache you get this like careful trimming and grooming in the bath scene of him like cutting it away like it's a big ceremony of him shaving it off but that's really the only visual change besides like location changes you know mm-hmm. most of the menace and most of the, like the subliminal terror of it is all through dialogue and like ideas and i always respect when a movie can you know make you feel like the rug's been pulled on from you in that you know terrifying kind of way just with words like i, I assume this is a pretty cheap film to make besides like paying the actors well also the score is done by philip glass Glass. and the score is terrific that kind of reminded me of birth you ever seen that movie Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah that that just that that opulent minimalist and those are like oxymoronic aren't they but the score is like very loud in the mix and it's like surrounding you but you know it has that philip glass minimalism to it that's like kind of terrifying right it's just like a few notes but they're really big and loud and grandiose but yeah, so I guess to like get into the movie, this guy is like an architect or yeah, it's not really made that clear what he does, but he has a bourgeoisie kind of life. And, and it, it seems like him and his wife have a very good relationship. 
it seems like they're in a loving, committed relationship. And the mustache thing, at first, he thinks is like a prank. A prank. He's like, oh, my wife told my friends to like kind of play a joke on me and say they don't see it. And eventually, that turns out not to be the case. There's something kind of conspiratorial going on where it's like, basically, either he's completely delusional or everyone else around him is in this grand conspiracy and you never quite get an answer of of what it is like it, this is a very ambiguous movie i think i think what it is is there's something wrong with the universe right something a lot of people complain about in movies is like the rules change to like make a story more convenient sometimes you know the rules of the universe being set in stone is like very important to some audience members logical consistency based on like in universe rules this movie changes the rules every few scenes to like throw you even further off. So it's like, oh yeah, it's alarming that people who haven't even talked to his wife don't realize that he's not like that his mustache is gone. But then the movie starts gaslighting both us and the guy in different ways. He yeah. unsurfaces these old photos from a vacation to Bali and he has a mustache in the photos. So he definitely had a mustache. Right. At some point. He has evidence. Like I had a mustache, like, just look at the photos. And then he brings the photo to an outside observer. So someone who's not in his social circle at all, a complete stranger. And they see the mustache, you it's know, real. He had a mustache. Yeah. And then the universe starts pulling the rug from under you in different ways. Like characters start disappearing mid conversation. She'll reference his parents in one sentence. And the next sentence, when he says, my parents, she's like, what do you mean your parents? Your dad's been your dead. Your dad passed away. And that's in like a split second a character disappears. So the movie is constantly changing its own rules and disorienting you to where you can't figure out this puzzle. And yeah, I, what drives me nuts is when people are like really meticulous about universe rules and like making sure everything fits in with a certain paradigm. Even though I haven't seen us yet, I know that's like a specific complaint. A lot of people have with that movie is like, yeah. Oh, the overarching metaphor doesn't fit because in this scene, this happens that whole like cinema sins, like dinging a movie for not being consistent. Right. Could not care less about that ever. Uh, and I feel like in this movie, it feels unique in a way that it's like completely changing the rules intentionally like instead of like movies getting dinged for sort of doing it for convenience or for like not paying attention or not being meticulous enough, mm -hmm. in this case it's like very deliberate and very aggressive, uh, and then like disorients the audience. So yeah, if it started off with just him shaving his mustache and no one noticed, and that was the whole premise throughout the entire time of the movie, I could see how it'd be a little either tiresome or silly. But the way that that's just like a the start of this like snowballing, him like getting out of sync with his universe. And not being able to get back into his own life is, like, terrifying. Well, and it's, like, really, uh, it's really, like, about identity, too, about what makes your personality. Is it the way you think of yourself or is it how other people perceive you? And so I think that's, like, a main thing he goes through in this movie is, like, he has this idea of who he is. Like, oh, I've always had a mustache. But then your friends and your family tell you like, Oh no, you never had a mustache or you're like, Oh, my dad's still alive. And other people say like, no, your dad's been dead for years. And so what, what is reality? Is it like the way I think about myself or is it what other people tell me is the truth well, about me? What makes you, you, you know, besides like 
happenstance right. is your memories and your experiences. So if someone starts stripping away your memories and your experiences and saying that's not right. That's not how it really That happened. really fucks with you. And, you know, I don't know about you, but some of the, like, most frustrating arguments I've ever had in my life are, like, late night conversations where both you <laughs> and a second person, like, right. half remember an event and are trying to consolidate your memory and get on the same page about what actually happened. And it's something so small... And mm-hmm. something so inconsequential, it really doesn't matter what the answer is. But it's frustrating that you can't agree on like a timeline and right. like a, a specific detail. Your memories event. can't coalesce and like come to some objective, yeah, understanding. Like this is what it is, and it's maddening. And there's a relationship aspect too, like, and th- this kind of comes full circle. So the character, you know, he feels like he's part of this grand conspiracy, and he decides just as he's about to be institutionalized he runs away in this very strange final act of the film he goes to hong kong and just kind of lives like not on the streets but he's like off the grid and there's all these scenes of him just kind of blending in riding a ferry back and forth riding a ferry and he you get the sense that he's just trying to be anonymous again and kind of reclaim some sense of himself and then he does grow the mustache back He's living in this little hotel and then his wife shows up towards the end of the film and she just like totally disregards what we saw before. She's like, oh, yeah, like I would like to see you without a mustache. And then he shaves it off. She's like, oh, yeah, you you look good. Like and we're questioning like, wait a second. What is real? Like, well, if you want to like make sense of the film and you want to fit that into like a logical storytelling standpoint, you could draw out this timeline where. You know, he and, he and his wife are having these, like, arguments, and then they go on this, like, vacation to Hong Kong and, like, just sort of, like, get out of city for a while. And meanwhile, he's, like, out of sync with her for whatever petty arguments they're having and then gets back on the same page by the end of the film. But the movie, I, I really don't feel like is logical in that way. I, I think what you're saying about him, you know, reestablishing his persona, I just see it as, like, him meditating He's like getting back into, you know, sync with whatever timeline of reality he's supposed to be on. Like mm-hmm. he's sort of like centering himself and like calmly being an individual for a while and like not relying on outside people to tell him who he is and like what makes him him. He's like alone and existing in his own space. And once he like finally centers himself and, you know, Eastern philosophy has like that meditation aspect to it. So it kind of makes sense for him to go to Hong Kong to do this. And once he's like centered and like finds himself again, then all of a sudden he's back to living a normal life with his wife, even though she still has memories and experiences that aren't something he can recall. It's right. it's like he's more back in sync with like a, a sense of normalcy by the end of the movie. But even yeah. that is like me doing a lot of mental legwork. That the film's not going to do for you because it's it's not supposed to be taken like yeah, it's metaphorical and it's ambiguous and it's very French that way and that's why I felt like it was a good pick for. We're going to talk about other French films. And that's why I like, I, I know we talked about Cachet. Yeah, this is very Cachet. So Cachet much, yeah. and La Moustache. Like, I love the way f- the French handle ambiguous psychological mysteries. I saw one last year you might like, and it has an actor from this movie in it. It's called Ivan's Ghost. The guy that they go to the dinner party with in the beginning, mm-hmm. he plays this novelist who's writing this like thriller about a spy and you kind of go back and forth from the spy to his real life. And he can't finish the book, partly because a 
wife he once had 20 years ago who disappeared, played by Marion Cotillard, just sort of reemerges, and her presence is impossible. Like, it, it just doesn't make any sense that she would just come out of the blue after being gone for so long. Mm-hmm. And to end the mania of the story, it spirals out of control in this exact same way, like snowballs, where, like, reality stops making sense and then gets worse. He has to finish the novel, and it becomes, like, this impossible act. And that hmm. frustration of, like, writer's block and, like, not being able to, like, find calm to write your work because your life becomes more and more preposterous, like, that's the menace that drives it. Oh, uh, yeah, that sounds Yeah, it's in the same good. vein. That is the most frustrating, maddening shit in your life is when you can't make sense of things and you can't recall things exactly as they are. And, like, if you can't recall that, then what even is the point of anything? Especially being in a relationship where you have varying accounts of some objective thing that happened and you can't come to an understanding about what is real and what truly happened. Like that is like a nightmare. And that's sort of what La Moustache gets into. And it gets into a lot of like about identity and what makes us who we are. If I have a mustache and I identify like I'm a guy with a mustache, but no one notices I have it. Does, is it, really a part of my personality if like everyone can just disregard like oh yeah you never had a mustache or like I'm laughing because this has happened to me before <laughs> really <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but it's such like an existential crisis because it's like I've created this thing that's like such a part of my identity you know and something as silly as facial hair or some tattoo you got and no one cares or notices and it's like part of your identity has been washed away. That's like nightmarish. And I, I feel like this film and a few others like really try to get into the murky stuff that goes with those feelings. Yeah. And I don't the, know. those arguments are not cute. Like you might think the mustache premise is like cute, but as far as like their actual arguments about whether or not he ever had one, like they get ugly very quickly. Cause it's basic reality. Like <laughs> yeah. what is like, <laughs> Why would you lie about this? Like, right. we both know the truth. I've had the mustache for 15 years. <laughs> uh, like, why so are you lying to me? And so I, I just feel like this movie for me is powerful in that it it's about a lot of things in the way that like, I feel like the French do particularly well, these kind of psychological, psychoanalytical, and it can get really bogged down in theory. And I know it can be like maybe a little too philosophical for some viewers, but I feel like La Moustache is a perfect entry point into like the way the French handle psychological horror. Yeah. I mean, even something as smutty as like Double Lover still has that psychological backbone. Yeah, to Double it. Lover too. Like yeah. it's getting into kind of the same thing, but I, I just feel like American films never quite deal with it as seriously as some of the French films I've seen, and like La Moustache being a great example of that. Beauty and the Beast has changed an enormous amount since its origins as a French fable. If you take into account all the mediums such as books, films and plays, there's dozens of versions. Hundreds if you count works which don't use the Beauty and the Beast or La Belle et la Bête name. The origins of the fairy tale, in one form or another, are thousands of years old, as too are the origins of many fairy tales, with different elements depending on geography, translation and storytellers just omitting and adding bits. But the true origins of the story are probably very different to what we would recognize today. French Film Fest happens every February at 
the Britannia. So it's like a week solid of just French movies playing one after another at the Britannia. And I love going every year, especially compared to like New Orleans Film Fest, which is like hundreds of movies all over the city. This is like one spot and it's about a dozen or so films. So it's really easy to like keep on top of it Mm -hmm. all. And I usually see like eight to 10 films at it. Uh, This year I had to scale way back because it was the week leading up to Mardi Gras. So like I saw two movies, went to Crew de Vue, which is like the first big parade of the season. And then immediately went to Chokehole, which is that drag wrestling hybrid show. Went to sleep for like six hours, got up, went immediately back to the theater, saw three movies in a row, then went to T-Rex. And then later in the week, you and I went to one more film and I canceled the second one so that I could go to a drag show that a friend was performing at. This was a crazy week. You're a madman. Yeah. So I only saw like four movies total this year. So this will be a quicker French Film Fest roundup than usual, thankfully. And you actually got to see a few of them because most of what I saw was older films. And first off was the classic movie slot they always have on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. It's something I go to at the Britannia almost every week. They play like some classic major studio production, usually from the 50s or 60s, usually an American film. And it's used to be hosted by the manager of the theater, Rene Brunet, who recently passed away. It's like 80-something years old. And they still play these, like, introductions from him where he's like, Today's classic movie is one of my very favorites. <laughs> uh, so it's, like, really sweet and endearing, and the crowd's cool. It's actually free if you have uh, New Orleans Film Society membership. So mm-hmm. it's already paid for for me to go. I really like French Film Fest always works in some classic French movie to fit that slot. So it's like a melding of like these two different events. And this year, the classic movie slot was La Belle et la Bête, uh, 1946, Jean Cocteau's adaptation of The Beauty and the Beast. And it's like this live action, black and white Beauty and the Beast fairy tale. I don't know how I'd never seen this up until now. First time for me as well. I always saw like, oh, Beauty and the Beast is the animated Disney. Like that's the ultimate version I remember when Disney put out their like live action Beauty and the Beast right. a few years ago, which is like mostly CGI, that people had mentioned this, like, why bother? There's already been a perfect adaptation of it. Um, I'm kind of glad I held out to see it on the big screen for the first time, because what a fucking masterpiece. It's beautiful. It's just gorgeous. The word I keep coming back to, and I know you mentioned it in your review, is like, it's magical. It literally is like cinematic magic. There's some intangible quality where it really does feel like it's straight out of a fairy tale and it's very much different than the beauty and the beast i was raised on it's more i guess erotic i think it's kinky as fuck kinky this is a kinky movie you know something i was watching i was like oh the beast and bell they don't have the same like cutesy chemistry that they do in the no the version we were raised on where she's like giving the beast a bath and he turns into a fur ball and they like have this like flirting this version is way more sensual and like yeah kinky might be or like deeply sexual and the castle itself is like writhing with sensuality and you have physical arms coming out of the walls and it's pulsating in a way that could put anyone under this like magical spell. Yeah, like the Disney version of the castle being alive is you have all these like anthropomorphic like I'm a clothes dresser and I've got a crazy right, right. personality. And I'm gonna sing you a funny song. This, this is yeah. darker and weirder. 
like you said, there's these muscular arms that jut out of the wall and like hold these like candelabras. They look these like erect dicks almost, the way they're like oh, yeah. super strong and like yeah, yeah. It's just them jutting out of the wall in this like erect position. The fireplace faces carved into the stone like stare at people quietly and smoke, like almost like they had just had sex and are like enjoying like a postcoital cigarette. <laughs> right. The doors and the windows and like her other bedroom objects beckon her in whispers. Are like, use me, come yeah. here. Yeah. Lay in me. Uh, also, the Beast and her power relationship is very much sadomasochism in that he is technically the one in charge, but he's definitely the subordinate in the relationship. See, and that's what's fucked up about the Americanized version where he's like verbally and emotionally abusive. And watching the original, it's flipped in a way like she holds all the cards. Like, even though she's a guest in his house. Well, she's a prisoner. A prisoner, sorry. Well, basically, the setup is, like, her father and her brother are both terrible with money. And she's basically sold to this, like, lion man. (laughs) Right. This, like, dog lion person. But she holds more of the cards than she does in the animated version. Where there's, like, scenes of him, the beast, drinking water out of her hands which is very so submissive sensual and very sensual and there's other stuff too where like he just wants to watch her eat he doesn't eat he just sits there and watches her eat which yeah. is called mukbang there is like a word for that right because <laughs> he sets up this like huge banquet she couldn't possibly finish and he just wants her to like stuff her face every night while he mm-hmm. silently watches and he like is waiting on hands and knees for her to command him to do things and yeah. like have you ever seen that movie Sick, that documentary about the guy with cystic fibrosis? Who yeah, was, yeah. He has this poem in this movie I always uh-huh. come back to where it's like a sub in a sadomasochistic right. relationship. And the line that sticks out is like, I'll always do what I tell you to tell me to do. And that's the exact like sub-dom relationship here. Mm-hmm. Like he's telling her to tell him to do stuff. And that's what he obeys. Like he's still in control but in like a uh, she's the one like applying the rules and like everything revolves around her like he gives her all these gifts but he won't look her in the eyes and anytime she compliments him he like turns away in horror like i don't want to hear it i just well, want to serve you and also he like from the very get go is asking her hand in marriage and she rejects him constantly but he keeps coming back for more he just wants the rejection the humiliation of it yeah, yeah the humiliation of like i love you like please marry me and He's like kind of getting off on that rejection. It's a much more interesting uh, sexual or erotic subtext than you get in any of the versions I've seen yeah. since then. It's a femdom fairy tale. <laughs> I agree with that. Put that on the box. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. What did you think of like the visual effects? Like, okay, the beast has this sort of like immobile face. It's not that bad though. I, I For thought, the 40s, it looks pretty great. I thought it looked great. Like, yeah. And, I don't know that I can't remember the actor's name that played the beast, but like he emotes a lot, even though it's obviously has like heavy costume and makeup on. They leave his eyes and his mouth free to move, which I think helps a lot with like emoting. But all the other visual effects are so much more fluid. Like Mm. there's these cut shots where she like emerges through a mirror or like it just emerges through a wall. And it's so seamless and like beautifully done that even now watching it, you know, we have CGI. We could see literally anything happen on screen. It's all possible. But just knowing that they did this like practically in camera yeah. is like just mesmerizing. Yeah, and I do think the castle too has this otherworldly quality about it. 
It's got that like German expressionist, like impossibly tall ceilings and like severely lit. Severely lit, yeah. So it, it's obviously borrowing from like the zeitgeist of the time or whatever, but no, it was beautifully lit and shot and acting. It's got this like erotic subtext to it. And um, I really, yeah, I was taken aback. Like anytime you watch a movie from the 40s, you're, you feel like you're going to be removed from it in some way, like uh, I, I'm not gonna quite connect with it, but I did feel like this was like the version of Beauty and the Beast that we deserve, and like is more true to the original. There really is no point in making the story again; like it's so perfect. Yeah, we've had so many like reiterations of it. Yeah, this is the version of Beauty and the Beast. It's like one of the best movies I've seen so far this year, from like any decade. You know, mm-hmm. it's a classic, no doubt. Well, I also saw a fashion documentary right after that that kind of took me by surprise. It's called Yellow is Forbidden. Um, I won't go too far into it except to say that I've been trying to understand fashion recently. Uh, You know, every now and then you get stuck in these like niche subjects like, why don't I know enough about, you know, comic books or wrestling or like drag? Like there's this whole history to this like subculture. And with the three things I just mentioned, it's really easy to get into those like you pick up any comic book or you go to any dive bar drag show or you go to any like local wrestling event and you kind of get it. Like it's made to be broadly appealing, Mm -hmm. Uh, but fashion I feel like has this, like I feel like you need to understand like decades of history and like how clothes are made and like different design. It's like understanding art in general. Like what? It's so complex and so much political context and like movements and everything goes into it. And it's been a struggle to keep up with it. There's this um, podcast called Dressed to the History of Fashion that's been like my best in for it. But even that is an audio medium. So I'm not seeing the fabrics and the designs in motion. You know, I'm like just hearing about them. Mm-hmm. I can see pictures later, but it's not quite the same thing. This movie, Yellow is Forbidden, is not an overarching fashion crash course. It's about this one designer, this lady Guo Pai, G-U-O-P-E-I, because I'm sure I mispronounced that. She is a Chinese fashion designer, like couture designer. Mm-hmm. And she came into prominence because Rihanna liked one of her gowns and wore it to the Met Gala in 2015. And, like instantly raised her profile on, like a worldwide stage. So what we see here is her using that you know signal boost to try to get into the Parisian, you know, couture elite. High art scene. Yeah. yeah. So she wants all these Parisian snobs to take her art seriously and to, like, raise her to the next level so she's just as respected as everyone else. But she has this, like, gender and racial bias in her way because she's a Chinese woman uh, coming in as an outsider to this industry where there's only, like, 23 people or something like that who are recognized as, like, the hot couture of Paris. And there's, like, an official commission that you cannot call yourself hot couture unless you're recognized as one of those 20-something people. And this is her putting on, I think maybe two fashion shows basically building up to like one big runway show in Paris at the end. The gowns are beautiful. There's a really interesting political context just from her gender and like her country of origin and all this stuff. But what this movie does that other fashion documentaries don't do enough of is it makes the designs themselves look like art. Like it's shot in this poetic kind of way where you, the camera moves with the gowns and like mixes in imagery of like things that she's inspired by, by like, you know, 
the fins of fish underwater or uh, kaleidoscopes twisting. Mm-hmm. So you get this sort of like full scope of what fashion is. Like there's the textile production of it. There's like the like actual like labor relations of people right. who make the work, even though she's the auteur that's like guiding it. There's all these people that have to like put in a year of labor to make one gown for her. And then the political t- context of where she's coming from, all the history of like what that means. That's all very important. And most documentaries I feel like focus too much on that end. This one also puts in the work to make sure you know that this is fine art and engages it on like an aesthetic artistic level and Mm. sort of tries to match the artistry and the poetry of her work by creating some poetry of its own and like emphasizing that end of what you're watching. So you don't Mm. lose the fact that this is like a visual artistic medium. So I think it's like a great, guideline on how more fashion documentaries could lean into what you want to see. Like I, I do want to know all the context and the history of it, but I also want to like be, you know, emotionally involved in like watching this like beautiful piece of art get created and watching it move on the runway. Instead of just like looking at it, like it's in a museum right behind some glass. Yeah. I'm like, like actually seeing it move. Did you go to that? The queen within thing at Noma last year? It was like a fashion art show at the uh, New Orleans Museum of Art. Yeah, we did go to that. It was beautiful, but Mm -hmm. the pieces are on mannequins and and display cases, and it was very artfully done, but it's different than, like, being overwhelmed with, like, an orchestra and, like, aesthetic beauty, and I don't know. I really don't feel like I get enough of that in fashion documentaries. But also, like, the camera, too, is, like... Guiding your eye? Guiding you along with the fabric or with the... I highly recommend it if you're just have any interest in fashion or like, you know, the idea of this like Chinese woman trying to break into like the French snobbery of, uh, you know, they control what is like high hmm. fashion. Uh, so, yeah, you know, there's this good cool. underdog story at the center of it as well. And the movie doesn't pull any punches in making her look like an asshole, too, because, you know, to be an overly ambitious auteur that requires all this like labor to make your vi- your singular vision work, you kind of have to be a fucking monster. And we've talked about that with directors a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she has that like bug in her, you know? Like she has this like perfect vision and she demands a lot of work out of people for like kind of a little amount of pay because it's the only way to make it feasible. Uh, and, you know, people have to work because they also believe in the vision, which, you that's know, doesn't pay gonna, your bills. That's how you're going to get this podcast off the ground, oh, dude. Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, we're going to be slackers forever. Oh, man. We've actually been talking about how to make the podcast less ambitious recently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Well, anyway, Yellow was Forbidden. Cool. It's a really good documentary. Uh, and it just came out. It's, like, brand new. I think you can rent it on VOD now. Okay. We also watched a movie from 1966. From the French New Wave. Woo! Which is like why you go to these things, right? Because the French New Wave like put France on the map as like the the definitive cinema, you know? Uh, This film is called The Nun. It is directed by Jacques Rivette, who is supposedly one of the more like subliminal, like surreal artists of the French New Wave. But this movie doesn't really go in that direction, I wouldn't say. Yeah, it's pretty... um... Man, it was pretty dreary. It's grim. It's a downer. <laughs> it's like I called it a prison sentence of a film. I was expecting like the devils, you know, a Ken Russell kind of vibe, and it was much more like straightforward, dreary, a lot of muted grays, and um, yeah, this is like a brand new like 4K restoration of this like you know high art film. So you. Expect with a lot of those, you expect that like almost like Suspiria, like mm-hmm. lush colors or like the red shoes or something. 
No. It's not that the restoration is, you know, half-assed or anything. It's that the movie is so grim and so locked into these, like, drab environments that there's no room for colorists to pop because there's no joy in the world that's depicting. Oh, man. It's based on this 18th century novel by Diderot that told the typical story of how a woman became a nun around that time. And it's this really grim tale of, like, how... If you're born a woman under the wrong circumstances, like if you're not useful to your family and being married right. off for you know political gain, they basically lock you away in these covens so that you can't disgrace them with like unruly behavior. So basically this woman is sentenced to a life in a nunnery the same way that in I'm Not a Witch, she's like sentenced to a life in a labor camp. But it's it's for the labor of respecting God. Right. It was like the aristocracy was kind of in bed with... The church. The church... To kind of sell off, you know, oh, my daughter, she's not married and she didn't have a career. So she was born out of wedlock, born so out of wedlock. Shame to me. She's already like kind of screwed. So here, church, like, please take her and make something of her. And yeah, it's like this totalitarian thing where she's like forced into servitude. What I thought was interesting about this movie is like she's a God fearing woman like she is everything the church should want but then she's like put through all this crap with like her mother's like kind of sexually exploiting her in some cases and i don't know she just gets screwed like (laughs) over and over and over again i think what's like interesting is how you kind of have to live with her like you get locked into these convents with her and there's all these like off-screen battles to like save her you know, there's a priest and a nun, right. like a mother superior and a lawyer who were all supposedly working for her benefit to like gain her freedom and like legally get her out of this nunnery that she doesn't want to be in this convent. Mm-hmm. And most of that is sort of off screen in these like sort of Kafka esque deliberations that we really have no part in. Right. And we're sort of stuck with her just sort of rotting in these cells and people like abuse her and things like that. Uh, where, where I think maybe some of the surrealism comes in with the director is in the sound design. Mm-hmm. There's these like roaring winds and these loud deafening bells and a really like disorienting sense of time. Cause you know, when you're in prison for that long, it's hard to tell like what's a day, what's a, what's a month, you know, and all that starts to get really confused. She starts losing time. She doesn't remember taking her vows and time and time again, these people that are supposed to be your champion, whether it's a man or a woman, always are doing it for their own sexual gratification without even letting her know that that's the option. Like, it's not like, oh, if you sleep with me, I'll get you out of here. It's I'm doing all of these things and it's a sin and I'm involving you in it, but I'm not even letting you know that there's a sexual aspect to this. Like, I feel like she's allowed no inner life. Like she's not even given the option to like screw around because she doesn't even know what sex is really. And she's just sort of like kept in the dark and keeps hitting this roadblock where people are supposedly helping her are actually just selfishly like using her for their own gratification and then feeling really bad for it about it. Cause that's what Catholicism is. It makes you feel guilty about feeling sexual thoughts. Why not? And that's what felt so like kind of inhuman about her situation is you can't even like really rebel at all. She's just stuck in this, this horrible situation, man. This movie was a downer. And then you get that like a fucking downer. the only like, sign of uh, any levity is when she goes to the uh, convent where everyone's like really happy and like tittering right uh, and having a great time 
and then it turns out immediately it's because they're all lesbians and like want to have sex with her. Yeah. But they won't even tell her that's the option. Like no one will state it in plain terms. So she doesn't even know what they're talking about. And she's just very oh. confused. And by the time she rejects them, cause she's scared because she's not even aware of what's being offered. Then it just turns dark and she ends up like getting into a worse situation because of it. And it's all very like just grim. The main performance is really good. Anna Karina, who is like and a she, French pop she's star. She's beautiful. I really liked the movie, honestly. Maybe it was seeing it in the theater, so you're sort of like locked there with it. You can't really like look away. I wouldn't say I had fun, but you know, I I, I enjoyed the uh, commitment to the bit. You know, like it it mm. uh, it's really like damning to the church and the way that women are sort of like sold off for like personal. Well, profit. and it also feels like relevant to the times too, like institutions that are built to like oppress women. And to keep them in the dark, <laughs> like of what they're even deciding for themselves. It, I'm not surprised the church tried to ban this movie when it first came out. This is like a banned film that like had a hard road around censorship because of that. Is it like, you know, they tried to ban the devils, the devils. And that makes more sense. Like this just seems like factually accurate. It's almost more yeah. dangerous for that, though. Right. It's really shining a light. Like this is actually what it's like. I took a history of women course like at UNO and a large part of the coursework was about these convents and how like that was just your life unless like your family would just kind of park you there and pick you up when you were like useful for like a a deal, you know? Oh man. Did you see the little hours recently uh, with Kay Micucci and Aubrey Plaza? Mm -mm. Uh, It's like this, but it's a sex comedy and it's really funny. Well, I feel like I've seen movies that are approaching this topic, but usually it's like non-sploitation. So like, you know, they lean into the kink of it or, you know, they like, actually that's it. They lean into the kink of it. (laughs) Right. And I feel like with this movie, it really just leaned into the, the like harsh reality of the situation. Like, even though there's that disclaimer at the beginning of the picture, like this does not represent what, the church is actually like, I don't, I, I guess they had some external <laughs> pressure, like to put that out there, but I feel like, no, this, that is what the church is really about. And there's like thwaps of like weird jazz and those loud ringing bells and the yeah. roaring winds. Like that's the only fanciful addition to the story. Everything else is like, this is what it is. Like you're just sort of stuck there until someone either sweeps you away or, you know, leads you to your own just, death. Yeah. Yeah, fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but it, okay, but honestly, like the technical aspects in the movie are great. Like just the way it's choreographed, and there's these long takes. The cinematography is good. Like it's technically well made. Like even if it is kind of a downer, you can still appreciate it's a well made movie. Yeah, is it something that it, like I want to go back and revisit all the time? Like probably not, but. I'm glad it exists. <laughs> I'm not even sure I could have fully focused on it at home without mm-hmm. like, locking my phone away or something. Cause it is very long and it's very grueling, uh, you know, sort of being locked in the theater with it. I feel like I was locked in prison. It's like, watch this. So definitely not something I would revisit for fun, but I'm glad I saw it. Maybe, you know, I could apply that exact same descriptor to the final film that we're going to talk about today, <laughs> which is The Image Book, the new film from Jean-Luc Godard, who's been making Mad these Man. Like, essay films since I think the 80s that are like sort of these collages of cinema. Oh, yeah. You and I saw this in the theater and it was preemptively warned 
ahead of time by a presenter, you know, don't worry, there's nothing wrong with the movie you're about to watch. That's how it's supposed to be. You're going to hear very loud noises followed by quiet sentences are going to be cut off mid-sentence. It's going to flash bright colors and distort, and that's just how he meant it to be. So don't worry, this is not a corrupted file. This is what you're supposed to be looking at. And that was a very helpful warning because the movie did seem like it was a fucking mess. Like it felt like it's elusive. I don't know what it means. Like what, what's your thesis of what this movie means? And well, okay. I can, I can describe what I think it is. Okay. I want to hear it. This is very concise. Yes. It's not going to be concise. Okay. No. (laughs) So he presents the structure of it in five parts Mm -hmm. and he calls it the five fingers of the hand. I can't even tell you what the different five parts are, but I think that I can name out three. The earliest part is remakes. He keeps flashing the word remake on the screen with these distorted images of cinema past. I could picked up a few movies. A new in Shandalu, that like classic Benwell picture with like the the cutting cow's eye. the eye. Yeah, uh, La Bella Labette was in there. The uh, Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. Elephant, Salo, Johnny Guitar, maybe well, some Joan Crawford movies in there. So, okay, some recognizable cinema mixed with children playing war and actual war footage. So that's like him, like, dipping his toe into what you're watching. Somewhere in the center of it, there was a section that was, like, about trains. There's a lot of train footage from films from the past and specifically from Nazi occupation, like, people getting put on trains to the Holocaust. And then the final segment was very much about war, but specifically Afghan and the Gulf Middle War East. terrorism. And the Palestinian conflict was a huge part of it. Yeah. Yeah. If I had to put a thesis on what the movie is, the whole thing about the structure of the hand and like how hands are, you know, what makes art and that's how a man expresses himself. Mm-hmm. That what that has to do with the subject of the film, I could not tell you. I do like that there is some sort of like guiding structure and that it's like five segments and he has like, you know, a reason for that. From what I understand, his actual hands in real life are like sort of failing him, and other people have to edit his movies for them because he physically can't do it. Hmm. So maybe that's what that was. Interesting. I don't. That's extra textual. It doesn't really matter. I would say the sort of guiding principle of the movie is that the situation in the Middle East is really fucked up. These people who like resort to like acts of terror, quote unquote, are very frustrated because they have no way to express their dissatisfaction with corrupt governments and you know abject poverty and like. They have no options left except to strike out in violence. Mm-hmm. He sees cinema and like this art that he's been participating in his whole life and helping to find as sort of useless frivolity when compared to that, you know, suffering. Mm-hmm. And it's like this sort of decadent indulgence of like us as a Western audience. And I feel like he's punishing us for <laughs> watching movies almost like repeatedly what he does is he shows an image that you kind of recognize from a film and it's proper aspect ratio and it almost looks almost halfway like beautiful and then immediately warps it to this like wrong aspect ratio so it's all like stretched out and ugly and this like high contrast xerox look of it and just makes it ugly and he like continually strips what makes a movie fun to watch it feels like he's deliberately attacking your senses and making it unpleasant to sit through the movie well it it's a personal picture in the sense, like, it's not meant for mass consumption. I really do feel like it's a film he made for him. And you get that sense watching it. Like, this is not for mass 
consumption at all. Like it's a director that's in the twilight of his years trying to like figure out is cinema even worth it? Like has cinema done a good job of articulating the Middle Eastern experience? Like that was one big aspect of the movie was what are the grand cinematic moments of like Middle Eastern film? It's very othering. Right. It's so, I don't know. And he's like, there's like this inadequate depiction of the Middle East in cinema. And that's one thing I picked up on. He kept going back to like the West does not know how to like depict the Middle East or Arab culture in a way. And it it seemed like he was struggling to come to grips as like a filmmaker. Like, what have I even done in my career? Yeah, like it seems like maybe when he was younger, he thought he could change the world through art. And now and he's now like he's an like, 80 year old man. And he's like, he's well, just, I failed. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I, I did nothing in the world is kind of weary of watching the world burn, you know? And he's like, but it's a, like, he's still trying to be radical and um, really trying to like create change. And, but he's like an 80 year old filmmaker. And I think he kind of knows the ship has sailed. I could see that being kind of a depressing thing to go through and it's angry right like he's this is like an angry it's movie. very angry yeah but i think it's like angry at like the futility of you know being alive and like trying to affect change through art but okay so we're talking about these like very overarching themes though when we were watching it in the theater like the minute to minute like what's happening on the screen and like uh-huh. if you were to like dissect each choice like oh what did that inclusion mean that is anyone's guess I'm trying to make sense out of like a pattern with like incomplete information and like trying to tell you what I think this movie's about. Right. But like second to second, like I can't even name you what the five different segments were because they're very loose and not very like rigid. It's hard to like say, you know, what. But it's called, okay, but it's called Image Book, right? Uh huh. So it has this literary aspect to it. And watching the movie kind of felt like when you're reading a really dense, heavy book where you have to go back and reread passages because you didn't quite understand them. And so that's kind of how this movie felt like watching it in the theater and absorbing it all at one time didn't quite feel the way it should have been digested. Like it feels more like a book where I want to go back to individual scenes, kind of replay them over and over and try to figure out like, Hey, what did this mean? And you can do that with a book, but you can't do that. Yeah, I don't with feel like movie. watching this movie again. Right. But if you had the book in front of you, you could skim back a few pages and reread the passage. But with a book, it's like you have to absorb it all at one time. I don't know if he meant that to be a critique of film, like why film can't address some of these bigger issues. But there, there's something interesting there. Just calling it the image book film is like lacking in some way yeah i see that but it's also the kind of movie that invites you to like find meaning like that like maybe even everything i said earlier was complete bullshit that's not what he meant at all (laughs) it's incomplete information and Mm. any pattern you try to establish in there is both justifiable and you know not by the text itself Mm -hmm. because it's ultimately kind of a deliberate mess and it's a little bit of a troll job. Like it is a troll. Yeah. I really do feel like there's like some sort of like attack on like Western culture and like the frivolity of like Western wealth here. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, 
I feel like there's a lot of stuff that is just there for like a gag. There's a shot of like hardcore analingus in the middle of the film. What that has to do with the subject, couldn't tell you, except that he probably had fun, you know, slipping it in there. Right. And it was funny seeing that in a crowd full of old people who just wanted to see a French New Wave auteur, like, put yeah. in one last film, you know. I think I think he's done after this, right? Like, he seems like he's on his last legs here. Maybe I'm wrong about that. You're just going to make Titanic 2? Would you have watched this at home, you think? I mean, it doesn't feel like something I have to see in the theater, but it also doesn't feel like something I want to see at home Either it's, um, I feel like it has to be seen in the theater for attention span purposes because it's kind of aimless. Mm-hmm. There's no like guiding A to B narrative structure to it. That's one of the things he takes away from the joy of watching movies from you. But also, just the audio is very surround sound, so it felt like yeah. the movie was like attacking me from all sides, like just sort of these empty philosophical statements being cut off halfway in every corner of the theater. And just sort of just the blinding strobe light effect of like these really nasty Xeroxed out of their aspect ratio images appearing on screen. I don't think I would have had the attention span for it at home, but in the theater, I was very impressed by like just the audacity of making something this abrasive. Yeah. It just feels like an eight year old man that's gasping desperately, <laughs> very, very desperately. And this also feels like the opposite end of what you were talking about earlier with La Mustache, like, Oh, French intellectualism. Like, this is the real cinema that really prods at like thought provoking things. But I'm sitting in the theater and people were like, Mmm, ah, yeah. And like <laughs> shushing other people from talking it's, as it's if they might amok. miss something. It's run amok in this situation. Like you could not make a parody of this movie because it's, a it's already of a parody itself. of itself. Yeah. yeah. I, I really liked just the fact that it exists and I really liked being trolled by it. And I do think it, it brought up interesting topics. Uh, it's not something I would say like is a great film that I would recommend everyone go out and but see. But see, it's interesting. Like this is like the last film we're talking about when it comes to French film fest because it's like very French, but in like kind of the worst way. Like <laughs> in the way that like French films get critiqued a lot. Like they're overly analytical, whatever. And this is like a prime example. It's like so French. It's frustrating. It's just nonsensical and pretentious, and yeah. But to go back with La Moustache, like that's in my wheelhouse of like great French filmmaking. Because, it, yeah, it's a little preposterous and very philosophical, but it's deep and meaningful. This Godard's uh, image book, it doesn't quite do it for me in that same way, but it's still part of the conversation. What I like is uh, what you were talking about with Lomo Stash, but like with smut, you right. know, the wild boys <laughs> and like double lover. Oh yeah. The wild boys. Yeah. I want that layer of like just pure unashamed smut on top of my like philosophical ponderings and that's like, artsy fartsy. Too. Yeah. yeah. That's where I'm at too. <laughs> There's uh, one shot of analingus in uh, the image book, but I would not call the movie smut in general. It's not if like If it would have like leaned in more to <laughs> yeah. the smut aspect. Like half hardcore porn and like half wartime uh, critique. It would have been a little different. Yeah. I would say, you know, just for this festival, that my trajectory was I liked each film like a little less. Like I really <laughs> liked The Beauty and the Beast. I really uh-huh. liked Yellow is Forbidden. The Nun I was impressed by a lot, but I don't know if enjoy is the word I would use for no. it. And, you know... The image book, I was impressed that it exists, uh, but <laughs> yeah, not something it. I'm going to revisit anytime soon. I agree with that yeah. assessment, yeah. Well, in the future, I think we're going to try to streamline the show a little more, 
now that the spring cleaning is done. But I don't want to f- sacrifice these Film Fest episodes. Like, I think this is a good sort of a pile on all these, like, yeah, recommendations. It's good to know that they exist. Yeah. Like, it's wonderful. Where else are you going to see... I don't think I Am Not a Witch played on the big screen in New Orleans all last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no. where else are you going to see stuff like this? So, the image book didn't make the rounds here, you know? Unless you live in New York, you really don't have an opportunity to see this stuff. Unless you go to your local film fests and <laughs> try to see the stuff you know is not going to get distribution so you can see weird shit on the big screen. It's kind of great. Well, next episode, we're going to streamline it. We're going to be really concise. Uh-huh, you say that. Yeah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we're going to redo the structure of the show to make it a little more simple. We're working on it. We've yeah. been doing this for like four years now. It's time to like, you know, rethink what we're doing. See you in a couple weeks. <laughs> oh, yeah, come see us at NoCast. Come buy some zines. There you go. The yeah. plug. There's the plug. Bye. Bye. <laughs>